<coughs> so uh, thanks a lot, uh, uh, Jason. Uh, uh, this is the third time Mary and I have been in New York for a fall semester and uh, teaching at NYU, but so many things draw us here. But I want to say one of the things that really draws us here is to be able to be you know, part of this uh, church, which we've grown very fond of over the last uh, six or seven uh, years. So thanks for having me back. And it's a pleasure to uh, talk to the group here because it's my way of getting no more Faces at Central, and so I hope we'll, I'll, I'll leave as much time as I can as I can for a conversation afterwards, so we can get uh, to know uh, one another. Well, that was a long and flattering introduction, but I'm going to add just one little fact to it uh, that's relevant to what we're doing here, which is that uh, among the cases that I've have argued in the Supreme Court. Uh, probably a majority of them, or at least a, a significant number of them, have been free speech and freedom of religion uh, cases. I, uh, I've represented churches and individuals and the Boy Scouts and all kinds of, uh, of organizations seeking to be able to, to uh, uh, live out their uh, lives in accordance with conscience, even in this secular and sometimes hostile uh, environment. So thought I'd mention that uh, too. Um, I'm going to be talking, I've been invited to be here four times this uh, semester. Um, I want to tell you what I'm going to be talking about the later times just to reassure you that I'm not always just talking about secular law. <laughs> uh, so today is going to be the least theological, the least biblical of the, of the talks. Uh, we're going to be talking basically about civil liberties uh, in America. Um, next talk is going to be on how Christianity, and especially Protestant Christianity, uh, has contributed to the civil libertarian traditions of the United States. Uh, the next time we're going to be talking specifically about a freedom of religion and especially the separation of church and state and how that relates to Christian belief, because I think there's often this sense that separation between church and state is a kind of hostile and anti-religious enlightenment idea that has been that we ought to be uncomfortable about. And I want to talk about the ways in which, actually, I think Christian.
conservative right that was most resistant to, uh, uh, to civil liberties in America. These things change with the, uh, with the changing issues and with the power dynamics in society. So this is, so although many of my examples will be coming from one side, uh, that's happenstance. It could come from anywhere. And I think that those of us who are um, civil libertarians and especially Christian-inspired civil libertarians need always to think about uh, how these freedoms are important, not just for people we may agree with, but for people that we may disagree with, not just for one side of the political or theological spectrum, but uh, across the board. Um, so let me talk first about what's happening about freedom of speech. A lot of the activity here is taking place on American campuses, and that's what I'm going to talk about for the most part. Now, you may think, well, you're just a professor, so of course you think college campuses are especially important. We all should recognize that college campuses are important for a couple of reasons. One is that these are the leaders of tomorrow, right? Uh, uh, the entire country is going to be uh, run by the people who are students today and what they think about the rights of others to be able to speak freely, the right even to offend them if they, uh, 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 under uh, uh, some circumstances. Um, what, what these young people think, are going, that's going to be our entire culture and our entire society down the road and not very far from now, so we really have to be uh, concerned about what's happening on college campuses. And it's actually pretty dire. Uh, I could have told you some anecdotes, but I just happened to have seen a very recent uh, uh, polling, big, big result of, of polls done by a scholar at the Brookings Institute, which you'll recognize as sort of center-left think tank in, in, in Washington. Uh, this is a very large survey of over 1,500 students, 49 states in the District of Columbia, uh, a very robust survey about how the students, call it present-day college students, think on, um, on various subjects related to freedom of speech. And it's, um, it's a little uh, shocking, to me at least. So here's one of the questions. I'll just tell you a few of the, of the results of the, of the poll. Uh, the, uh, imagine that they, they ask the, the student to think about a public university that has a controversial speaker invited for an on-campus event. And there's a student group opposed to the speaker that disrupts the speech by, and the way the wording of this is by loudly and repeatedly shouting so that the audience cannot hear the speaker. And then the question is, do you agree or disagree that the student's group's actions are acceptable? So the question here is, do people have the right to disrupt other people's freedom of speech? Um, answer for all, stu all students, 51% think, think it's acceptable, 49% think it is not acceptable. So that means a slender majority thinks it's okay to shout down uh, speakers uh, you disagree with. Um, there's a big partisan difference about this. Students identifying as Democrats 
think it's acceptable, 6238. Students identifying as Republicans think it's unacceptable, 39 to 61. So big partisan divide. There's also a bit of a gender divide on this. Uh, men, male students, are by 10% more likely to think it's acceptable to shout down speakers than their, uh, than their female uh, uh, counterparts. Um, and then it gets worse. The next question is about not just shouting the speaker down, but using violence to prevent the speaker from speaking. And this is, of course, not just a hypothetical, right? You know, it's happened at Berkeley, it happened at Claremont, it happened at Middlebury. Um, and uh, on this, the results are considerably better in a sense. Only roughly one in five students thinks that it's okay to use violence in order to shut down a speaker that you disagree with. Uh, one in, I think one in five is an enormously high number. That number should be zero. Right? It should, in a civilized uh, society, that number should be zero. We don't use violence, even against people who are quite, uh, you know, who deserve to be shut down. But, and I don't think very many people deserve to be, but whether, even if they did, violence is not the way uh, to do it. By the way, here again, there's an, by the way, there's almost no partisan difference on this. Republicans, Democrats, almost the same on this particular question. Uh, but again, an even bigger gender gap. Uh, only 10% of women and 30% of the guys think it's okay to use violence to shut down uh, uh, speakers. Um, I want to mention, by the way, that although most of the incidents that you read about uh, have been from one side of the political spectrum, but this is not but not exclusively, and I would not be surprised if we start seeing um, the extreme right on campuses beginning to uh, use some of the same tactics. Just last week, the Attorney General of California, Xavier Becerra, I think his name is, uh, appeared on, uh, at, a, at a campus, public university campus in California, and a group of pro-Trump supporters uh, shouted him down uh, to the point that he was unable to speak. So this is happening uh, from both sides of the, uh, of the spectrum. Uh, let's see, any more interesting findings here? Uh, there's, uh, uh, oh, well, this is, I thought this was kind of interesting. They asked the students, what kind of college would you like to go to? Would you rather go to one where uh, certain, you know, you, you protect students by prohibiting certain speech or expression of viewpoints that are offensive or biased against certain groups of people? Or would you rather go to a university that's an open learning environment where people are exposed to all sorts of speech and viewpoints, even if it's biased or offensive? So there's two choices, right? And, and it's pretty close to 50-50, 53-47 in favor of the more protected and less speech-oriented, right? Um, I thought that was pretty interesting. And on this, pretty big, uh, a significant partisan divide and almost no gender divide on that question, which I think is curious. 
Uh, so that's enough. Uh, oh, one other thing. <laughs> a different survey of high school students, because that's really where a lot of this is beginning. And uh, unfortunately, uh, students in high school are no longer receiving civics education that involves any kind of education, what freedom of speech is all about. That's a big part of of our difficulty. But I thought this is curious. The Knight Foundation 2016 survey of high school students Um, I thought this is 91% of students agree that, quote, people should be allowed to express unpopular opinions. 91%. That's pretty pretty high, pretty good, until you find out what that means. And then they were asked, um, what are people allowed to say what they want in public, even if it's offensive to others? That's only 45%. So what they apparently mean is, you know, you can say things in the privacy of your own home that might offend some other person, but you can't say these things in public, and only 43% think that you can say these things on social media, which is, of course, not for me, maybe not for a few of the other gray-haired people in the room, but for most people and young people in America, social media is now probably the key way in which uh, uh, communication uh, uh, takes place. So uh, at, at the same time as we see these opinions, you know, the Supreme Court has been as favorable to free speech as any you know, 10 or 20 year period in American history. Since uh, uh, John Roberts became Chief Justice a little bit over 10 years ago, uh, the uh, the court has had a whole string of free speech cases. They haven't all gone in favor of the speaker. There's a, you know, there was a case about uh, uh, people assisting terrorist organizations. They lost. There was a spe- uh, a, a case about uh, students w- w- putting up a banner that was arguably promoting drug use. They lost. You know, there've been a few, there've been a few losses, but there's been a big string of. Uh, cases defending free speech rights. Uh, some of them even go a little far for me. I didn't think much of the, vi- you know, it's okay. people have a, a constitutional right to sell violent video games to minors. Who'd have thought that? I mean, that's, that's, that's going, that's even more than, I'm pretty civil libertarian, but that's a little more than, than, uh, than I can, uh, 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 can see. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, Wide range of contexts, uh, freedom of speech has been quite robustly protected in the Supreme Court. Uh, so, uh, and including some of these very sensitive culture worry type uh, uh, cases. So, um, uh, just last year, uh, a band was held to have the right to keep its copyright, even though it named itself uh, by a racist name. I think, by the way, this case, although it was about this band that I'd never heard of, their name, by the way, was The Slants. It was an Asian band. Uh, I think that's going to pretty much protect the Redskins from any attack on their uh, uh, trademark. Uh, That could have been very controversial. It wasn't, actually, for the Supreme Court. That was was not that uh, that hard a case. a really hard case, but ended up eight to one, you know, had to do with this group of Westboro Baptist Church demonstrators who go around to funerals of, of servicemen and say extraordinarily hateful uh, things about uh, 
uh, gay people and servicemen, uh, things like like God hates fags and all the really terrible stuff. That's actually one of the more repeatable terrible things that they say. <laughs> and uh, at funerals of all places, and then uh, the Supreme Court actually held that they had a free speech right not to be sued for having done that. So um, the Supreme Court has been very protective. The lower court's a little bit more uneven, but the Supreme Court pretty good. So we have a huge divide between an official constitutional doctrine, which is very protective of speech, and yet a culture which, especially in the, among our younger future leaders, is not at all uh, <coughs> protective of speech. Why is this? I, you know, I'm not a sociologist, but I'll just throw out uh, a few points. One, one problem is the increasing polarization of our society in which people uh, increasingly are only talking to uh, those of their own particular uh, viewpoints, so it's a, it's a bubble effect. Uh, there's pretty robust sociological evidence that when you have groups of people who have um, come into a discussion sharing a particular point of view, the entire group will become more radical with respect to that point of view. If you go into a group that is mixed, then the entire group becomes more moderate. So being around, interacting with, conversing with, having civil relations with people with whom you disagree is, has a moderating effect. Being separated along ideological lines has a, has a radicalizing effect. And, uh, and in a number of different dimensions, Americans are ceasing to have the same kind of uh, mixing experiences that would have been true, say, 50 years ago. Uh, in terms of residential patterns, this is one, <laughs> if you look at voting maps and so forth, you see that the America is separating uh, between red America and blue America, but even more so social media. Uh, over social media, people can uh, unlike or is it dislike? I don't do Facebook, whatever it is. Uh, you know, you like, you, anyway, you can cut off people so you only talk to, uh, to those who, who you want. And, and in, in the last election, there were phenomenal numbers of um, young Americans were defriending people because they were supporting the wrong candidate for president. That means you're not even talking uh, anymore. On college campuses, most college campuses are so, um, they're really like one-party states, and, and, and students who aren't with the program just keep their mouths shut. And when they don't just keep their mouths shut, they are subjected to a high level of, of abuse from their peers. Now, this is not coming from government. This is one of the remarkable things about the threat to freedom of speech today is it's not really emanating from authorities. You know, some university administrations are pretty bad, but for the most part, it's emanating from uh, your, your fellow students. There was a, um, <clears throat> a report of a, a, a focus group uh, at the Museum, which is a sort of a... a Freedom of the Press out, uh, institution in Washington, D.C. Uh, they brought together 50 students from a wide variety of 
of schools and just uh, engage them in conversation about freedom of speech on their campuses and without directing them, without giving them questions, just finding out what they say about things. And almost entirely their discussion was about threats to freedom of speech from each other, not from the government, not from the university administrations. And this is, and I think social media is feeding this. So there's another thing about the technology of social media that is contributing to this uh, phenomenon, which is the ability to uh, do sort of crowd shaming on an, anon on an anonymous basis. So somebody will say something, it may be infelicitously worded, it may be unpopular, and, and there seems to be this sport of you know, jumping on people anonymously and saying terrible things about them. Now, I'm not on Facebook. They may be jumping on what I say and saying terrible things about me, and I don't care since I don't see it anyway. But for students for whom, for young people for whom this is their social world, to have this kind of vicious crowd reaction is a, is a real uh, problem. But I think underneath this, it is, uh, there's an, uh, an acculturation going on through social media and through the polarization and the bubble effect where young people are coming to expect that they will not have to tolerate speech that they find offensive. Right, that it is. Uh, that, that's the right. That's the way things should be. They should be protected for this. And then there's this third, further phenomenon on college campuses that is especially weird for me. You know, I went to college in the early 1970s. Like, which you know, if university administrators had told us what Halloween costumes we could wear, we'd have gone berserk. Right? It was like. The, the idea that these grown-ups would be telling us, I mean, it was way too extreme. I mean, you know, the dorms were awash in terrible things when I was in college, but, but, uh, but n no self-respecting student wanted the administration to come in and regulate student lives. Now, for, there's a huge cultural shift in which students now want the administration to come in and regulate their speech, their sex lives too, which is another another thing altogether. That's a very weird uh, uh, regulatory world. Uh, but but speech on campus and students, and and so you have this odd phenomenon of uh, uh, of you know students and the power structure together, right? Uh, uh, trying to uh, suppress the speech of. Of other students, so I think that's that is also part of it. But f the most important cause, I believe, is the failure of our educational system uh, to teach this, the fundamental values of the American system, including our civil libertarian uh, values. Um, nobody is talking to the students about the value of freedom of speech, and you know, surprise, surprise, uh, they. Uh, they're, they're not picking it up. This is a very serious uh, problem. Um, well, freedom of religion, I, I do want to have time for, for you all to jump in, so I'll just talk for, for five or ten minutes about this. Um, 
again, there, again, there's a disjunct between the Supreme Court and uh, our culture, although perhaps not as extreme as the first. The Supreme Court has been remarkably favorable to religious freedom claims during this period. I was saying they're favorable to free speech claims, religious freedom claims even more so. So again, looking at all the Supreme Court cases since John Roberts became uh, uh, Chief Justice, uh, they, the, all, all of the um, important religious freedom cases, with two exceptions, have gone in favor of the religious freedom claimant. And uh, including a unanimous decision holding that there has to be a religious freedom exception to the civil rights anti-discrimination laws for churches to be able to hire whomever they want. That's a, that was unanimous. Uh, you'd never, if you just read the newspapers, you would think that there's nothing but 5-4 contention on the Supreme Court, but there's actually been very robust protection for religious freedom. Uh, the only 5-4 to four case where they really divided up in their sort of liberal conservative uh, 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 spitting match is, uh, was the Hobby Lobby case. Uh, having to do with whether a for-profit corporation can refuse to include uh, abortifacient drugs in its health care uh, decision. I think the case came out rightly by my lights, but it was a hard case. That that, that was five to four, I don't think is particularly uh, uh, surprising. Um, last term, there was a very important case holding that states can't refuse to include organizations like child care. This happened to be a child, uh, uh, child care uh, uh, outfit. I can't exclude them from uh, the benefits of, of uh, programs that the state has for other, in this case, other child care uh, uh, organizations, simply because they're religious. That's, I think that that was a very important, uh, very useful uh, a case, and, and it was seven to two. That's pretty good. That's uh, you know, it's it's not a. This, these cases are are being. They're still at the Supreme Court level. I think a very substantial uh, understanding that freedom of religion matters, and, and this is important. That freedom of religion includes the right to do things that are different from what the culture believes in. That's part of what it's all about. It isn't just a freedom to conform to the majority. It's a freedom to follow your own conscience even when it's uh, against uh, the majority. The, the Little Sisters of the Poor case, when it comes, the, the similar to Hobby Lobby, but instead of having a for-profit corporation, now we're talking about religious organizations like the Little Sisters of the Poor. They won unanimously in the Supreme Court. Now, the coverage of these things is very odd because the, the media like to portray the battle, they, but when it, all go, when it turns out that there's a lot of consensus on the court, they're not quite as, you don't see like big headlines, Supreme Court unanimously backs the rights of little sisters of the poor. No, you know, page, you know, B, B A, you know, I'm sorry. Um, so this is about the right of religious organizations not to cover abortifacient drugs in their, um, in their health care policies for their employees. And thank you for asking. Um, and um, 
number of unanimous decisions during this period. So the Supreme Court has been very, uh, has been on the whole, I mean, there have been, there've been a couple setbacks, but for the most part, the Supreme Court has been quite uh, unequivocal and showing you know, near unanimity in, the, in support of uh, religious freedom uh, uh, claims. Um, what about out in the culture? Well, there's some good news as well as some bad news here. And the good news is that levels of toleration for religious groups have actually been going up. Uh, there's good uh, polling data on this, that uh, in the last 10 years, uh, this is a, it's a fairly general question where uh, the, you're asked, the, the respondent is asked, what are your feelings toward this group? And it's, it goes from uh, you know, somewhat hostile to very favorable and it's graded by color, you know, like red to green or something like this. So I'm a little, I'm not sure what I think about that as social science methodology. But the uh, results were very interesting. Every single religious group either improved, and in some cases dramatically improved, uh, the, the tolerance of Muslim Americans it went up by eight percentage points in 10 years, which is pretty remarkable, particularly given that we're told that we're in the midst of this wave of Islamophobia. Turns out maybe there's some Islamophobia going on among fringes, but the great mass of the American public has become more tolerant, not less tolerant, uh, of Islam, um, either more favorable or about the same. So no group uh, went down. And then this is divided. The demog internal demographics of the poll are quite interesting because they divide it by all kinds, you know, region and gender and age and political affiliation and a lot of things. I thought age was the most interesting. Uh, the, among people under 28, the most favorable reaction, I mean, which, which religious groups get the most favorable reaction? I thought it was quite interesting. Buddhists and Unitarians. So uh, the least favorable among, the, among this younger cohort were Mormons. That was curious. Uh, 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 among the uh, 65 and older crowd, mainstream Christians were the most popular uh, uh, group. Overall, nationwide, mainstream Christians remained the same. I don't know whether that's good news or bad news. At least it isn't getting any worse. Uh, so anyway, a lot of a lot of toleration, and including an, a different poll uh, asked about um, whether you believe that various religious groups should be able to have uh, students should be able to have meetings in high school. Uh, this is back in the '80s. This is one of my big legal issues: was defending the right of. Uh, Bible study groups and that sort of thing to be able to meet in the afternoons and in high school we largely prevailed on uh, on that but it still arouses some a level of contention uh, the uh, uh, favorability of Islamic of Muslim student groups meeting went way up the um, favorability of Christian students meeting went down. <laughs> thought that was interesting. Almost entirely, by the way, a partisan thing. Uh, when we get to, like several weeks from now, I'm going to talk about how Christians t present themselves and participate in the public space. And I'm at that time going to, I'll give you a warning now. I think that uh, one of the serious problems for the gospel today 
is too close an association between uh, uh, Christianity and well, conservative politics. You know, I say that as even though I'm pretty conservative, but I still think that the church needs to be very careful not, and as Christians we need to be very careful not to confuse our views about politics and our views about Jesus Christ. Those are two quite uh, different things. Um, and I think that's affecting uh, results like that. So that's kind of the good news is increasing toleration for relig- various religious groups, for all religious groups. Really, The bad news is this, that the culture wars uh, have pinpointed uh, religious freedom as being uh, a target. Um, and the, the battleground here are statutes that usually go by the name of Religious Freedom Restoration Acts, these are statutes that protect the right of people uh, to practice their religion even when there's some law that might uh, stand in the way of it. The, the case that stimulated the passage of the first federal statute on this was about the Native American church and their being able to use peyote in their, uh, in their sacraments. By far the largest use of these statutes is by prisoners uh, to be able to worship and uh, in prison, like uh, Jewish prisoners, to be able to ensure that they get kosher meals and and uh, and, and things of that sort. Um, one of the applications of these statutes, in theory, although actually never in practice, there's never actually been a case uh, that comes out this way. But some religious people objecting to involvement in same-sex marriage in some way or another. And uh, the, I mean, the, the Baker case in the Supreme Court is kind of like this, although actually for technical reasons it, it won't involve a, a RIFRA, but there have been cases in which RIFRA has been involved. And um, there are you know, very powerful and well-funded organizations who have decided that for that reason they are they're really targeting reference so no states that pass them get you know huge uh, blowback uh, there was litigation recently although it went against the went in favor of the state but in, against Mississippi claiming that one of that its RIFRA was uh, uh, actually violated the establishment clause because of the theory that it was designed to favor one particular view namely um, opposition to same-sex marriage when in fact the statute you know these statutes are quite uh, are quite broad um, I and the level of intolerance here is just uh, breathtaking um, there, in a, in a way, I kind of understand the reason for this, which is, I mean, if you're a great believer, if you're LBGT yourself or a great believer in LBGT rights for, you know, for millennia, you're, you've been the target of the laws, including, you know, very harsh uh, criminal laws, and then suddenly in the United States, the law... <coughs> Shifts and, and now you have a right to practice your sexuality uh, as you uh, uh, see fit. Um, they, the, many of them are not willing just to say live and let live. They're going to say, 
you know, you treat, we were treated very badly, and we're gonna, we're gonna respond, we're going to respond in kind. And the level of intensity about this is just breathtaking. And and in particular, these rifras are the target. Even though, as I say, there's never been a winning claim for any opponent of same-sex marriage under one of these things, but they are described uh, publicly as if that's what RIFRA is all about. There was just an empirical study, it's not yet published, of what RIFRA claims are really about. And again, the predominant use of them is, uh, the largest single use of them is by prisoners, various denominations, very few of them Christians. Christians actually generally get what they need to worship in prison. Uh, It's the smaller religions that don't. The second biggest category are asylum claims. By the way, a lot of them are Christians because of the uh, uh, extreme anti-Christian persecution that goes on in so many countries uh, uh, around the world. And beyond that, I think uh, uh, Muslims were third and Mormons were pretty high, but basically mainstream Christians are, uh, there, there's, if you look in absolute numbers, mainstream Christians have a reasonable number of referent claims around the country, but as a proportion of the population, it's a, you know, that's not what RIFRA is about, that's not what they're usually used for, and yet these opponents are targeting RIFRAs, they want to just get rid of them in spite of the fact that they're protecting people's religious freedom in so many different dimensions because they're afraid it might protect the religious freedom of people uh, who disapprove of their own uh, uh, sexual uh, lives. So, um, And we have a case in the Supreme Court, it's the, be the, I think one of the more interesting cases this year called Masterpiece uh, a, a bakery. It comes out of Colorado. Uh, this is a baker who uh, uh, has no has gay friends. Has produced cakes for uh, gay people. Has no pro- but does not but believes that marriage is reserved for um, a man and a woman and will not make a wedding cake for uh, a same sex uh, a ceremony. Uh, this did not lead to the happy couple not being able to get a cake. You know, it turns out you know every bakery on the street is very happy to to serve them. Uh, it was just the insult, right? And I, I think you can see it is a it, it's a real insult. But when the law, I mean, the funny thing about this is we have a right to insult. If I walk up to one of you and insult you, I have a free speech right to do that. But somehow, if my refusal to sell a cake to you is an insult, then it's, um, it's suddenly the state has the right to punish the insult. Uh, this is going, although the people involved here, the bakers involved, have religious reasons for objecting to the same-sex marriage, their strongest claim in the Supreme Court is actually has nothing to do with religion. It could be anything. Uh, their real claim is a free speech claim and especially a claim not to be compelled to say something or to create something which you don't believe in. And so they are um, uh, making a cake. This doesn't just mean you throw something in the oven. 
wedding cake bakers are very creative. They consider it an art. This would be like you know asking Caravaggio to uh, uh, to uh, paint a, a, a painting for the local Satanist church. You know, they, you uh, it's creative, it's artistic. He doesn't want to give a message that uh, that he doesn't uh, agree uh, with. And and the most interesting fact, it's not often reported, but as you read about this, see how often it's reported, is that in Colorado there were two instances of pro-LBGT bakers who refused to produce cakes for organizations opposing same-sex marriage. And the commission in Colorado said, that's fine, you have a right to do that. So uh, I think that fact may really influence the Supreme Court. We'll see what they do. The Supreme Court is not always great when it comes to really high-profile culture war issues. But uh, they've been pretty good on freedom of speech. The person to watch here, as in so many cases, is Anthony Kennedy, who's going to have a real tug because he's been the leading figure on the court in favor of uh, LBGT stuff and same-sex marriage, but he's also been one of the strongest uh, free speech and freedom of religion, but especially freedom of speech uh, proponents on the court. So he's got to be quite tugged. Uh, by the case, I am cautiously optimistic about it, and I also think it would just be so healing for the country. Um, you know, same-sex marriage is something that uh, people disagree about uh, in, in this country, and it goes fairly fundamental. I mean, there, there are deep reasons on both sides uh, uh, for this, and uh, I think that if the Supreme Court will say, yes, uh, we've already said people have a right to be married, you know, same-sex marriage, so they can do what they believe in, what's true to them, but other people are free to adhere to their contrary view as well, and they can't be forced to um, celebrate something that they that their religious or other conscience won't permit. I think that would be enormously healing. Uh, I realize that you know a lot of the loud voices in our society wouldn't like that. I don't actually think they want healing. What they want is a crushing, uh, you know, total victory. But I think most Americans uh, would welcome a decision from the Supreme Court that might enable all of us to, to, to live together.